Hey, In The Thick family, it's Julio here. And today's episode was recorded a couple of weeks ago. So before we get to it, we just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the recent devastating news from California. Just three weeks into 2023, and it's already been a horrific year when it comes to gun violence. On Saturday, a gunman opened fire at a Lunar New Year celebration in Monterey Park a city which is east of Los Angeles that has a very large Asian-American community. At least 11 people were killed and nine others were injured. Many of the victims were Asian-American immigrants and less than 48 hours later in Half Moon Bay, a city about 30 miles south of San Francisco, another gunman opened fire on Monday afternoon at two different farms, killing seven people. Local officials said many of the victims were Chinese farm workers. Our hearts are with the families and the communities affected in this horrific time. We wanted to take the space to remember the lives lost and offer care and support to their loved ones. Okay, let's get to today's episode. First off, I just wanted to say, yeah, we could house everybody in this city. We don't have a housing shortage. There's plenty of housing that's sitting empty. We have an affordable housing shortage. From Futuro Media and PRX, this is In The Thick, a podcast about politics, race, and culture. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. So we're doing a really interesting show, and we're very happy yeah. to have our guest from the most amazing place on the planet, Queens, <laughs> New York. I love it. No, I'm not <laughs> kidding you. I love Queens. Yeah, I love Queens too. And I also love the Bronx and the South Bronx, which we're going to be talking about on today's show. But welcome Amir Kafaji, who is a labor reporter for Documented. If you don't know Documented, it's a New York City-based nonprofit news site that covers immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. And it's really run by and for immigrants. It's a great site. Amir, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Great, 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 great. Remember, listener, we're still recording from home in case you hear some weird sounds in the background. You have been forewarned. <laughs> Who knows yeah. what might be happening in Queens <laughs> at this precise moment. <laughs> so listen, yeah, I know we're laughing, but January 9th marked the one-year anniversary of the Twin Parks Northwest building fire in the South Bronx in New York City, and 17 people died. It's a big story for New York, and we wanted to talk about it because it encapsulates a lot of what we need to talk about in terms of immigrants and safety nationwide. So the fire started after a space heater on the third floor ignited a mattress and spread to the rest of the building. Now, residents of this building, many of them from Gambia, from Africa, had filed over 30 complaints just in the month before the fire, and yet management neglected these issues which begins to sound a lot like the 1970s South Bronx, where it was just like, ah, oh, we don't care. You know, it's the South Bronx filled with Puerto Rican people. Who cares if all of your buildings light on fire? That's kind of the attitude. So because of the faulty self-closing doors, this fire was able to spread over the entire building. And a lot of the people died of smoke inhalation. And on the anniversary of the Twin Parks fire this year. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, announced a new policy to help combat, quote, America's fire problem. This is going to allow the U.S. Fire Administration to investigate the causes of fires in buildings, identify buildings that have those same issues, and make recommendations. Amir, you wrote about what the families 
are still waiting for one year later. And we're going to get into the details of your reporting. But, you know, we just want to know first, Amir, because you've been reporting on this for, you know, this entire year and so close to it. So Mm. how are you, because you're also an immigrant, how are you doing as a journalist before we get into this story? Kind of how are you doing as you're reporting this story? Well, I, I'm a, I'm the son of, a, of an immigrant. My mother's Puerto Rican, but she's she's um, uh, New Yorican. You know, she's like yeah. second second generation. Boricuas in the house, just for a second. <laughs> um, I, I need to acknowledge. I always acknowledge Boricuas on in the thick. Orale, Boricua power. All right, so definitely not an immigrant. But my father's Egyptian. So he, oh, I love what a mix. <laughs> and he's an immigrant, and uh, he came here in the '80s, and he met my mother. And so I like to say I'm an Arab Rican. Oh, nice. I, can, I, can we just take a second? Can we just take a second? Love it. There are many. Love it, love it, love it. New York and Queens right there. Exactly. Arab Ricans. <laughs> Arab Ricans. So, so how are you doing, Amir? How are you kind of feeling as you're covering this story now for a year? You mean like my mental health? And just yeah, how I feel? that's what yeah. we do on this show. We actually talk about journalists and our mental health. Yeah. Your mental health. No, that's refreshing, you know. It's It's been difficult. In addition to being a, a labor report, I've also been covering the fire beat. And I've been covering not just what happened in the Bronx fire, but I've also been covering what's been happening in Queens, where there was another massive fire that happened. And so I've been covering that story. It's been difficult because what I've been seeing is that after a natural disaster, after a fire, or after flooding, which I've also covered, the city is really not prepared to handle this influx of essentially urban refugees that Mm. are losing their homes and becoming homeless due to these fires and floods. So it's been difficult just to see the pain and the everyday struggle that they've been going through. I visited them at uh, motels that a lot of them have been sheltered at. And a lot of those motels, to tell you the truth, it's horrible. It's a horrible experience. They're dealing with bed bugs. They're dealing with um, roaches, mice, mold. A lot of these hotels are kind of seedy motels. So there's a lot of weird things going on in the hallways and in the lobby. Mm. But it's 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 really stressful. But what gets me through is my determination for the truth and trying to find what exactly is going on and what kind of um, deficiencies are in the system that they're experiencing. And hopefully with my reporting, we can find some help and Mm -hmm. we can find some justice for them. American journalism at its best from a man of Puerto Rican and Egyptian descent. How amazing that is to (laughs) me. And right here on ITT. The future of media. This is, you know, this is exactly why we do what we do. And thank you for being so open about sharing how you feel, especially because you're covering trauma, right? And the Twin Parks fire is one of the three deadliest fires that have occurred in New York City within the last 20 years, all taking place in low-income housing in the Bronx. More than one million Americans live in public housing that lack basic life-saving fire safety measures, like, like basic things like sprinklers. And hardwired smoke detectors. Think about that. More than one million people. And the Twin Parks fire exposed the urgency of New York City's housing crisis. What you just said, Amir, the urban refugees, for example, where the lack of affordable housing leaves millions fighting to pay high prices for unlivable conditions. So Ngozi Cole, who's a journalist who reported on the Bronx fire, spoke with our producer, Daniela Tello Garzón about the housing disparities within different parts of, of New York City. So let's take a listen. This is only happening because 
it's in the Bronx. If this this could never happen in like a wealthy part of New York. And I think New York is a very interesting landscape to examine because you can clearly see the divide in housing issues where, you know, if you live in a certain part of New York, your experience might not be the same as someone who lives in like another borough of New York or even another side of where you live, like right across the river, the housing issues might be different. And of course, I think this has to do with racial and economic issues. You know, if a certain demographic lives in a certain part of New York, these neighborhoods that I covered that happened, that were affected by this fire, were mostly Black and Latino. People who lived in that building were mostly West African immigrants and Caribbean immigrants as well. And, you know, there's a pattern of negligence in those types of low-income housing communities that can be linked to race and um, socioeconomic issues as well. Amir, what systemic issues do you think this fire exposed and what changes need to be implemented to prevent further incidents like this one? That's a good question. I think she was spot on. We're not seeing this happening on Park Avenue, right? We're not seeing this happening to the richest people in this city. We're seeing this happen to the poorest people in this city, the most vulnerable people in this city. The Bronx fire and the Twin Parks fire was a disaster that was indicative of the overall racial disparities that have plagued this city for decades, right? There was a reason why the faulty door, right, was one of the main reasons why the fire spread throughout the building. You know, there have been reports on it, right? Also, fire alarms that were going on and off in that building for apparently weeks before the fire had happened. So when the fire alarm did finally go off, nobody took it seriously because they thought it was just another case of a broken alarm. Why was the building falling apart like that, right? Why was the door not closing properly, even though there was uh, several violations that the landlord was supposed to fix over time, right? Why was the alarm ringing for weeks before the fire and no one fixed it, right? That's because it's it's the demographics who lives in the building, right? It's black and Latino people, immigrant people living in the building. It's in the Bronx. It's not as important to the people who control this city. And that's why the fire happened the way it happened. And that's why that's so many people died. And that's the unfortunate truth and it's the unfortunate reality. Since the Bronx fire, there's been several other fires where Hundreds of people have been displaced from their homes, and a lot of those fires are occurring. We had documented that had reported that, that this was happening in immigrant communities and communities of color and working class communities. This wasn't happening in rich communities. So it, it's a horrible situation that needs to be exposed. And how we could fix it, we need fundamental social change uh, at the end of the day. We have to have a fundamental change in our attitude on housing. People aren't, you know, the city has this idea that people have to be deserving of housing, right? They have to jump through all these hoops to find affordable housing. When in reality, housing is a human right and good housing should be a guarantee for all. Hi, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of Latino USA. We all love great stories. And great stories are what we pride ourselves in delivering to you every week. Latino USA presents a mix of reporting on culture and politics, diverse voices, and coverage of current and emerging issues, featuring stories from the heart, stories that will make you think and maybe even inspire you. Listen to Latino USA on your favorite podcast app from PRX.
when the fire happened last year in the Bronx, I started thinking about the Happy Land fire that happened at a nightclub in the Bronx in 1990, where 87 people died. And at the time, the club had no fire exits or sprinklers and wasn't up to building code. And Maria, you actually reported on this, right? The Happy Land fire? Yeah, I can't stop thinking about the comparison between the Twin Parks fire and the Happy Land Social Club fire. It was, yeah, 1990. I was a budding journalist for NPR. Mm. And what it showed was that's why I love Queens and that's why I love the Bronx is because there are these extraordinary communities there. Yeah. Like, for example, in the Happy Land fire, it was the Garifuna people. Right. People in New York had no concept. They were like, the who? The what? Right. And it's like, yes, they are from Honduras. They're from Central America. They are an indigenous and Afro-indigenous peoples, a community that has survived for hundreds of years through tremendous cultural resistance. And so it's a terrific and terrible tragedy. It's really sad that it continues to happen this many years later that it's like, okay, so now we have the Twin Parks fire and people are like, oh, wow, wait, wait, there are people from Gambia in the Bronx, in the South Bronx? Right. Yes. A extraordinary, incredible human beings and, and lives that were lost in both cases unnecessarily. Right. And, and last year after the Twin Parks fire, I actually got to speak with Jose Francisco Avila, who is a Garifuna activist on Latino Rebels Radio about the parallels between the two communities that you just mentioned, Maria. So let's take a listen. I like to say, when I say that the Happy Land Social Club fire is part of my narrative, it has to do with the fact that I always introduce myself by saying, I represent a community that New York did not discover until March 25th, 1990, the Happy Land Social Club fire. That's when New York found out that we were here. It is sad because until a tragedy happens, no one even knows that a community exists. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, the same that's thing. That's exactly what we were just saying. That's exactly yeah, what exactly. we were saying. You know, and, and a shout out to Oscar Fernandez, who's my producer at Latino Rebels Radio, but now produces with the In the Thick team. When he wanted to make that connection, I said, we're all in. Because yeah, I instantly thought about the Happy Land fire as well last year. And with the Twin Parks fire, there's a particular impact here on the community with so many of the building's tenants being from West Africa. So when we think about accountability, the lack of maintenance and policy often goes hand in hand with the marginalization of these communities. So Amir, given the context, given the history, I know you've said, you know, underrepresented communities, if this happened on Park Avenue, it'd be a different type of narrative. Talk more about this lack of, uh, you know, accountability and maintenance and policy. It's almost like we're prioritizing lives here and that's really tragic. Yeah, it's when housing is considered a commodity, right? It's expensive to even have a roof over your head. This is the result. You're going to have people living in unsanitary conditions, unsafe conditions. You're going to have people living in buildings where it's not maintained. You're going to have people living in small apartments, like one-bedroom apartments or studio apartments, where there's like two or three families mm -hmm. probably living together in that small apartment. That's a common thing here in Queens. Mm. I covered the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, and a lot of people had died in basement apartments. Yep. Oh, with the floodings, yeah. With the flooding. And a lot of them were um, Nepalese and Tibetan and other communities that also we don't really think about or speak about in New York. Mm -hmm. And they died in these basement apartments, which were illegal apartments. Why are people having 
having to live in basement apartments, right? Because that's all they can afford. The least affordable housing is usually the most uh, safe housing, but the most affordable housing is usually the most dangerous housing, right? And that's the reality on the ground. You know, people are going to stay where they could afford. And what they could afford is usually apartments that are not up to code or illegal apartments that are, are not necessarily safe to live in. And that's what we're seeing. And then unfortunately, unless we address those issues, right, and making housing more affordable and making housing more equitable for the communities in this city that are the most disadvantaged and the most vulnerable, you're going to have more twin parks. Mm. And that's, that's the sad reality of the situation. Mm. And you know what's also sad is that you had to have people, one of my favorite people, Cardi B, get involved to help pay for the victims' funerals. And I would, I don't know, Amir, when you say like the the city can't handle the arrival of more immigrants, I'm like, you know what? They could if they wanted to, in my view. They really could if they wanted to. I'm sure you agree. We could make this city what it should be, right? The center place of thriving immigrant communities, not like what we witnessed with this fire where you're a vulnerable community. So one year after the Twin Parks fire, tenants in fact are still recovering from the PTSD of losing family members, surviving this fire. The mayor's fund to advance New York City, which is a city-run nonprofit agency run by Mayor Eric Adams, raised $2.5 million for the former tenants last year. But victims are saying that they've only seen a fraction of that money. And despite the ongoing restoration work in the building, A lot of residents still are fighting for basic living conditions, as you've been saying, Amir. Now, the immigration status and visa issues are, of course, top of mind for these families. Salim Drame is president of the Gambian Youth Organization. He spoke with our producer, Harshana Hatta, about what some of the families are fighting for. Let's go to the tape. Honestly, right now, like the biggest issue that they've actually had, having their family members come from back home to come and mourn with them. The day of the Janazah, which is the Islamic funeral, a lot of politicians came out here and some said, hey, we promised that your family members will be able to come over here and you know mourn with you. To this day, I believe only we had like three individuals be able to come over to the United States over here to mourn with their families. The rest have been denied. There was a time like literally everybody that applied They had the right documents and all this stuff were denied a visa to come. I mean, that's just the narrative again is the lack of humanity towards our immigrants in a place like New York City. Just another example, Maria. Yeah. So, Amir, what are the families, what do they still want in the immediate? How are people helping them get that? Because it's not like this is a continuing big story in a lot of the New York media. And that's why we're so happy that you're doing this work. You know, first off, I just wanted to say, yeah, we could house everybody in this city. We don't have a housing shortage. There's plenty of housing that, that's sitting empty that's not affordable, right? We have an affordable housing shortage, right? Can you say more about the, I'm sorry. No worries. I don't want to lose that context and not to interrupt. When you said about the city has plenty of housing, for people that don't understand that, could you give any specifics as to where that housing is? Like, what, what does that mean in the context of, you know, affordable housing? Well, there's all this housing that's that's in the millions of dollars, especially in Manhattan, midtown Manhattan. They built all these new towers. It's called Billionaire's Row, right, where they got all these buildings that are 
in the millions of dollars, but yet they're just sitting empty. They've overbuilt the supply of expensive housing, but they haven't built enough affordable housing. So if we just made those buildings affordable, then I think we would have enough supply to eliminate the homeless problem in New York City, as well as having a lot of space for the migrants coming in from Texas and other places like that, as well as people who are survivors of fires and floods or anything like that. So that's just one one suggestion I have, right, of just making the unaffordable housing affordable and because it's just sitting empty, as well as kind of like reinvesting in public housing and whatnot. Those are things I think that we can have significant and important conversations about in this city that and those conversations are happening. But to your point of what's going on on the ground, yeah, we're seeing amazing, amazing resiliency by these communities because they haven't just been passive victims begging for help for one year. They've been actively fighting back and organizing themselves and depending on each other and not just depending on the city to help them out, right? We have mutual aid groups like the South Bronx Mutual Aid Collective and the Gambian Youth Organization that are really doing amazing work and filling in the gaps, the service gaps that the city should be doing, but they've been stepping up and really helping out. And that's been amazing. But in terms of what they've been wanting, So after the city had raised over $2 million, we did some reporting last March to show that that money wasn't trickling down to the families. And a lot of those families didn't get much of that money. So after our reporting had documented, the city had said that they were going to invest three more million dollars into the fund. But this new reporting that we've done showed that they've only received a small fraction of that money with the rest of the money. We don't know where it's been going, really. And some of that money went to an organization called Bronx Works, where they got over a million dollars. And instead of just giving that money to the families so they can get back on their feet and start their lives, they hired new staff to work on wraparound services for those families. (laughs) And then any additional money, they said that it has to be means tested. Wow. So they have to prove that they're deserving of that money. That's the attitudes. Crazy. Yeah. So, Amir, you know, there is the other side of that. And this is why I love, love the South Bronx is because of the solidarity. South Bronx, South, (laughs) South Bronx. Sorry, I always have to break a car ass one. Yeah, because of the solidarity, you know, you, you really don't have anyone else to depend on but each other. I I was recently at the South Bronx and I just kind of had that community experience and I was just like, that's why I love this place. And so, for example, watching the solidarity of the Mexican community, very well-known restaurant and community-based organization called La Morada, doing outreach, doing cookouts with the Gambian community. I mean, it's just been a beautiful thing to witness. Now, interestingly, Amir, uh, as you said, you cover a couple of beats. You are, in fact, chiefly a labor reporter And you've covered a lot of different workers, whether they're construction workers, they work in nail salons, delivery service workers. And I guess before we wrap up, what intersections between labor and immigration policies have you been seeing in your reporting that you just want to tip us off to one or two that we should be on the lookout for that you've Mm. you've been reporting on? How I always see it is uh, most immigrants in New York City and in this country are working class people. They come in and they're workers primarily. Uh, My father was a yellow cab driver for most of his life and he supported a family on the salary he made as a yellow cab driver. Most immigrants I speak to in New York, they're they're working class people. They're working in restaurants, they're working as uh, delivery workers, they're working in nail salons, they're working 
in construction. They're actually the lifeblood of New York City. New York City is being built by immigrant labor. It's being served by immigrant labor. So there's no way of getting around it. Most when we talk about immigration policy, it's often in the context of labor, right? When it comes to the right wing talking points of immigrants are taking our jobs, right? Or the idea that immigrants because they're undocumented status, they're the ones that most likely get taken advantage of. They're the ones that often have to deal with wage theft and all kinds of workplace abuses. Yeah. People on H-1 visas often have their jobs tied to their immigration status, right? So they, they can't just walk away and leave if they don't like their job. They have to put up with a lot more than average people. So the brunt of the labor stories in New York and in this country is predominantly immigrant stories. So when it comes to those intersections, it's just inescapable. What I find the most interesting in New York is the fear that immigrant workers have on their workplaces, especially when it comes to speaking up against abusive bosses. Yeah. Wage theft mm -hmm. is rampant in New York, especially when it comes into the restaurants. Mm -hmm. Restaurants are one of some of the most egregious places where wage theft is occurring. And many of those workers are terrified of speaking up or risk their immigration status. And I've seen that across the board and I'm, I'm working on several stories now where, you know, that's the case. Listen, we're moving on to our final segment, which we call La Ultima y Nos Vamos. So, um, <laughs> again, when I covered the Happy Land Social Club fire, it changed my life, Amir. I, wow. It really changed my life. I was a young reporter and um, just met so many incredible people and learned so much about the Garifuna people of Honduras. Amir, share something that you have learned about this community specifically maybe the Gambian community writ large, the people of the South Bronx, something that you have learned in your reporting that mm. you're carrying with you? You know, one thing that, that comes to mind when you ask me that is just, there's something special about the Bronx and the resiliency of the people in the Bronx that it's something that I came to really appreciate more. You know, my mother's from the Bronx, right? So I, I always like to say that's kind of like I have deep roots in the Bronx. But when, when I was doing this story and reporting on the story and seeing how the Bronx is, what, especially the South Bronx, is the poorest congressional district in the United States. The neglect that the Bronx has faced is probably some of the worst cases of neglect in the city. And how no matter what and no matter how many challenges the people there face and how many tragedies they constantly have to deal with on a daily basis, their resiliency to continue, to continue to fight, to continue to demand justice is unprecedented. And it's really inspiring. And it helps inspire me to know that people are still fighting back and they're not going to let things settle and they're going to continue to demand what's rightfully theirs. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm telling you. Go to the South Bronx and go there now because it's changing like in the blink of an eye. But we love feeling very connected to that resistance and that hope. We love that. Amir Kafaji, labor reporter for Document in New York. Thank you so much for joining Julio and me on this episode of In the Thick. Thank you for having me. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Remember, dear listener, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to In the Thick on all major podcast platforms. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In the Thick Show. Like us on Facebook and tell everyone you know in 2023 to listen. Yes. This episode was produced by New York Women's Foundation Ignite fellow Daniela Teo Garzón. Thank you, Daniela. It was mixed by Rosana Caban. In the Thick is also produced by Noor Saudi, Harsh Nahata, and Oscar Fernandez. 
Our editorial director is Fernanda Santos. Our audio engineering team is Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, Gabriela Baez, and JJ Carubin. Our marketing manager is Luis Luna. Thanks to Raul Perez for recording me. Music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kep and ZZK Records. I sweated up a storm. Doing the work. Doing the work. See you soon. See you. <laughs> we'll see you on our next episode, dear listener. Remember, no te vayas. Ciao. Bye, y'all. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.